Our first panel this morning addresses originalism and textualism, which are, of course, common topics for Federalist Society programming. But this panel discussion will offer a unique and hopefully very practical application of these interpretive methods. The panelists today are not here to debate which interpretive theory is correct or optimal. We're, debating, we're not debating the merits of originalism compared to living constitutionalism. Rather, the panelists will assume that we're operating or practicing law uh, in uh, an environment uh, where the judiciary generally desires to apply the original public meaning of the Constitution and statutes using textualist methods to determine and apply the correct meaning of the law. So when a legal issue is to be decided in such an environment, how do we as lawyers or judges go about applying textualism in the courtroom right where the rubber meets the road? And we're going to get some great tips from our experts, and I'll try to introduce some common issues practitioners grapple with in this area. Uh, we'll have time for audience questions at the end, and I think we'll have a pretty significant amount of time for that. So if you're a lawyer or judge, and I, I think we've got over 100, uh, well, we've got over 150 judges registered. We'll have many in this room. Uh, start thinking about your best questions about the application of originalism and textualism in your courtroom uh, or while representing a client. Our panel includes luminaries from state and federal courts and distinguished lawyers from both private law firms and the government. First, we have Judge William Pryor, who serves as a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. He received his undergraduate degree from Northeast Louisiana University, graduating magna cum laude, and he received his JD from Tulane University, also graduating magna cum laude. He served as a law clerk for Judge John Minor Wisdom on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, following a distinguished career in private practice and as a part-time adjunct law professor, he was elected Attorney General for the state of Alabama. He was nominated by President George W. Bush to the 11th Circuit and confirmed by the Senate in 2005. Next, we have Sarah Harris. Sarah is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Williams and Connolly, where she specializes in United States Supreme Court appeals and does appeals and litigation in many courts. Uh, she received her undergraduate degree from Princeton, graduating summa cum laude, and uh, received her PhD and Master's of Philosophy from Cambridge and her JD from Harvard Law School, graduating magna cum laude. She clerked for Judge Sandra Lynch at the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, and later Judge Lawrence Silverman, Silberman at the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. In 2015 and 2016, she clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas at the United States Supreme Court. Next, we have Justice Sarah Warren. Justice Warren received her undergraduate degree from Duke University, graduating magna cum laude, and her JD from Duke, magna cum laude. She clerked for Judge Richard Leon of the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, and also clerked for Judge Edmondson on the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Justice Warren practiced as a litigation partner at Kirkland and Ellis in Washington, D.C. In 2015, she returned home to Georgia. She served as Solicitor General of Georgia prior to being appointed to the Georgia Supreme Court by Governor Nathan Deal. At this point, some of you may be becoming concerned that our panel is lacking top shelf academic credentials. 
So I very intentionally included a University of Florida College of Law graduate, <laughs> Joe Jaco. Before becoming a Gator, Joe received his bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia. He worked on Capitol Hill for Senator Connie Mack prior to law school, and after law school, he worked for Congressman Bill McCullum, Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson, and Senator Saxby Chambliss, while Joe served as chief counsel for the United States Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration and Border Security. While at Senate Judiciary, Joe was also involved in managing the Senate confirmations of Justice Samuel Alito and Chief Justice John Roberts. He was also a lieutenant in the United States Naval Reserves. His first service in Tallahassee was a decade ago as the Chief Deputy Attorney General under Bill McCollum. And as most of you know, he now serves as General Counsel to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. What most of you do not know is that Joe and I we're in law school together at the University of Florida. Joe was our president of the law student chapter of the Federalist Society. And not only were we in law school together, we were in the same uh, entering class in 1996. We we're even in the same section. And we even sat on the same row, the back row, where for some odd reason, the Federalist type students sat. <laughs> and from time to time, from the back of the room, a professor would get a Federalist type question from one of the wise guys on the back row. And I have to share one of those questions because it's uh, particularly relevant to our panel topic. Um, Two months into Joe and my first semester of constitutional law, first semester of law school, one of the Federalist students sitting next to Joe on the other end of the back row from me uh, raised his hand and he asked the professor, uh, he said, we're, we're now two months into the study of constitutional law, but we have not yet read a single provision of the United States Constitution. Will we ever read the Constitution in this class on constitutional law? Now, I know many of you remember this professor. It was Professor Quarles, a wonderful man who taught many of you at the University of Florida. And Professor Quarles, who at the time was about 170 years old, <laughs> uh, but still sharp as a tack, he didn't miss a beat, and he responded that he did not believe reading the text of the Constitution had any place in the study of United States constitutional law. Well, this caused a bit of a stir in the classroom, and then Professor Quarles explained that this was not a course on the United States Constitution. It was a course on United States constitutional law. Uh, and as he explained, the uh, United States constitutional law is the study of what the U.S. Supreme Court says the text, uh, says the Constitution means not what the text of the Constitution provides. And he said, students are welcome to read the document on their own if they like, but they will find that it has little connection to the 20th century case law we would be spending most of the year reading. So over time, I came to appreciate that what he said 20 years ago was actually correct, but we hope it is changing gradually back to where it should be. So now I'd like to give each of our panelists an opportunity to offer opening remarks, they have each been allotted eight minutes, and we'll begin with Judge Pryor. Good morning. Justice Elena Kagan said a few years ago, famously, at the Scalia Lecture at Harvard Law School, we're all textualists now. So is that true? <laughs> what, what did she mean by that? 
Um, and what does it mean uh, for the future for all of us? Uh, I think there was some truth to what she said, uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about particularly uh, the state of textualism in the, in the future, now that Justice Scalia is no longer with us, he was really the champion who resurrected um, the practice or the methodology of textualism. Um, and I think a perfect illustration of the influence that he had and, and the influence that I think Justice Kagan was, was discussing um, at that lecture was the first case of statutory interpretation decided by the Supreme Court after he passed away, uh, United States versus Lockhart. It was a case uh, uh, involving a child pornography uh, defendant who had a prior conviction from New York involving sexual abuse of an adult. And the, the text of the federal statute at issue provided for, instead of a maximum sentence of 10 years of imprisonment, a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years of imprisonment up to 20 years of imprisonment if the offender had a prior conviction for sex abuse, aggravated sexual abuse, or I'm trying to remember the exact language, sexual um, conduct involving a minor or ward. And the question for the, for, the, for the court was, does that final phrase involving a minor or ward modify the entire list of prior convictions uh, under state law that could trigger the mandatory minimum sentence, or does it only mod modify the last uh, in the list? I think it's actually abusive sexual conduct was the last in the, in the list. Uh, and there was a great debate on the court. Both the majority opinion and the dissenting opinion cited Justice Scalia's treatise, Reading Law, the Interpretation of Legal Text. Now, I teach a seminar uh, each fall at the University of Alabama Law School, Roll Tide, <laughs> and one of the, we study, we read the entire book, we read the treatise, but we also read a lot of Supreme Court cases and a few law review articles in the course of the seminar. But one of the cases I have them read is Lockhart. And the question I ask my students is, which opinion would Justice Scalia have joined and why? Or which parts of which opinion would he have joined and why? Uh, it's a fascinating case. It's a close case. At the end of the, I think it's a triumph of textualism uh, and his methodology uh, that both the majority and the dissenting opinions cited his treatise. Uh, in fact, the majority opinion written by Justice Sotomayor, uh, which, which held that the offender's prior conviction for sexual abuse of an adult 
counted for purposes of triggering the mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years and held that the, the phrase involving a minor award under the rule of the last antecedent qualified only the last of the three prior convictions, qualifying convictions in that, that list of state law convictions. Um, and she cited uh, and quoted that, that rule from not only reading law, but she quoted actually a, a statement of the rule from United States versus Barnhart, an, uh, an opinion that Justice Scalia had written uh, several years earlier. Uh, so a real appeal to the authority of Justice Scalia by Justice Sotomayor. On the other hand, uh, Justice uh, Kagan's uh, dissent, a very entertaining dissent, if anyone uh, could be called you know, a rightful heir to at least the writing style of Justice Scalia, it might be Justice Kagan, um, or a really fun and well-written dissent, quoted from, not just cited, but quoted from Justice Scalia's statement of the series qualifier canon. Uh, and made a pretty pretty compelling case that the, the phrase involving a minor award um, modified all three of the prior convictions listed in the statute and therefore the defendant's conviction for sexual abuse of an adult should not have counted. Now, Justice Kagan's dissent had three parts and the second part we know Justice Scalia wouldn't have joined because it was all about legislative history. <laughs> Although I, I like to tell my students, he, 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 he would permit the use of legislative history for a couple of, uh, of limited purposes, and we, we could talk about that. But, um, but in any event, um, the right answer on my exam is that Justice Scalia would have joined Justice parts one and three of Justice Kagan's dissent, that her argument about the series qualifier canon, and then the third part of her dissent, an argument about the rule of lenity, I think, um, I think pretty clearly is where Justice uh, Scalia would have been. I'm, I'm helped by the, well, I know I'm right about this, but I'm helped by the fact that I know what he asked it from the transcript of oral argument. Um, there are a lot of reasons why I know I'm right about this, <laughs> some of which I, I, I don't want to really reveal. <laughs> but, um, but in any event, it's a close case, good arguments on both sides. Justice Thomas was in the majority, joined Justice Sotomayor's opinion, so you know it was a good, uh, a close case. Um, and I think it should give us a lot of hope about the future of textualism. But I, but I think one of the things that, that it tells us too is that we can have an agreement about what the role of, the, of a judge is, what the methodology should be, but we're still gonna have reasonable disagreements about what the right answer is in, um, in particular cases. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, textualism's hard. There's, judges are going to reasonably disagree. If you, if you really, every practitioner should have reading law in their office. Most of what we do as federal judges is interpret written laws. A lot of that is it's like a return to Miss Thistlebottom's class in English in high school. Uh, a lot of the language canons that we, that we apply are really just um, 
how the English language works. That's what the debate in Lockhart was about. The rule of the last antecedent versus the series qualifier canon, the language canons, linguistic canons. Uh, if, if we care, what do the words mean? If we think that the law is the words adopted uh, by Congress or a state legislature, um, we're going to have a lot of debates about just how language uh, works. We're going to still have reasonable disagreements. Um, one of the, I think the great contributions of Justice Thomas has been that to have that second and originalist and textualist voice on the Supreme Court has forced lawyers to appeal to that methodology because they know with two votes it, it could make all the difference um, in, in their case, whether they win or lose. Uh, and having that second originalist and textualist voice has also illustrated that sometimes you can disagree. There have been a lot of cases, a lot of examples of Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia disagreeing, though they agree about what the proper methodology uh, is. So um, it also has caused the judges who don't necessarily always adhere to that methodology to respect it, to understand it, debate, debate the terms of it. And you find you know, competing opinions in the Supreme Court where the two of them have split, but both sides are joining what are textualist or originalist opinions. Now, as a Federal Circuit judge, the last thing I'm going to say is um, I don't get an opportunity to do a lot of originalism because of uh, what Jason said at the beginning of, about the state of constitutional law. Most Supreme Court precedent that binds us and, and governs us in our everyday work is not necessarily rooted in, an orig in the original meaning of the Constitution, and we have to faithfully apply uh, Supreme Court precedent. But I've had a handful of cases in the last 15 years where I, I did have that opportunity. I think a lot of the exciting opportunities come in the state courts with state Supreme Courts and state constitutions, and I, I'm sure um, we'll hear a little bit more about that from our panel. Um, but, but in terms of textualism, that's where there's still a lot of debate uh, on our court, on all the federal circuit courts. Um, and it's an exciting time. <laughs> uh, it's an exciting time to see so many um, judges taking that, um, that methodology seriously. Um, and, you know, if you want to see Justice Scalia's influence, see how many times reading law is being cited by judges of all kinds of different backgrounds who are appointed by all kinds of different presidents. Um, it was, it's really remarkable. 30 years ago, no one could have predicted it. Thank you, Judge Pryor. And on one point you just made about reading law being cited often. Brian Garner, the co-author of Reading Law, has now become the most cited uh, legal author in the United States Supreme Court jurisprudence throughout history. And there was another that preceded him that had nobody thought would anyone would break the record, but now it is. That, that is a, definitely a, a, a sign of, of good things going on. Now uh, we'll hear from Sarah Harris. 
So I couldn't agree with many of Judge Pryor's, can you guys hear me? Okay, great. Couldn't agree with many of his comments more um, because I also like to start off with something that Justice Kagan said with respect to the interpretation of the federal constitution. She famously said in her confirmation hearings, we're all originalists now. So all originalists, all textualists. And again, like Judge Pryor, I think there's a sort of question, what does that really mean to sort of say you're an originalist on the Supreme Court? I think it certainly means that we see a court that takes originalist arguments very seriously, that the justices may not all adhere to the idea that they're gonna start off from feeling themselves bound to divine the original public meaning of the text, but they'll at least take the arguments seriously and engage with them. Um, and even if we're just talking about that, that is a sea change from say 30 years ago when you would see briefs before the Supreme Court litigants arguing and the justices themselves sort of saying, well, you know, I see, yes, yes, you know, you might have this sort of textual argument, but that's not really what the Constitution is about. Um, what we really sort of see is like an evolution of the principles or, you know, a balancing test in here. And so there's just been such a change in the way that people approach the court as litigants and the way the justices see the cases uh, that I think it's really important to highlight, especially in practice. So I'd like to do sort of two things in my remarks. First, um, I'm gonna walk through a recent Supreme Court case that exemplifies this sort of seriousness, at least about originalist arguments, because I think it's a, it's a fun case that kind of tells you if you wanna, if you wanna take an originalist approach, what kind of sources should, be, should you be looking at and what kind of debates are possible even if you are looking, all looking at the same sources and trying to get the same, uh, you know, trying to take the same approach and getting the same, but not getting the same answer always. And second, I'd like to talk as a practitioner, um, what is it like to litigate now before a Supreme Court that is more willing than ever to entertain textualist and originalist arguments? So the case I want to discuss is one called United States versus Gamble. It's from last term. It looks at first a little arcane, not super approachable, and I think it certainly illustrates originalism is hard. <laughs> it is not easy. It's a lot easier to sort of say, this is the outcome I personally prefer. It takes some hard work, but I hope to convince you at least that it's worth it in terms of the richness of the debates and the opinions that you see in this case. So the question is whether the Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause prohibits one sovereign, say the federal government, from prosecuting a defendant for the same offense that the state or another sovereign already pursued. Um, so let's say you know there's a federal wire fraud offense, and it is the same sort of substance as a state offense. Can you as a defendant be on the hook for both of those? The double jeopardy clause text says you can't be prosecuted for the quote, same offense. But what does that mean? Uh, this is an interesting case right off the bat because the answer to that question had been settled for about 170 years. And the answer was um, in something called the dual sovereignty doctrine, which is when one sovereign is prosecuting you for an offense, it's a different offense from when a different sovereign prosecutes you. Uh, so that's why it's sort of separate sovereign, dual sovereignty. The court took the case, though, to consider, is that right? Um, and if that isn't unusual enough, the reason the court, one might surmise, took the case was because Justices Thomas and Ginsburg, in a very unusual coalition, <laughs> joined in a 2016 concurrence to say, we have some qualms about this doctrine. At least it deserves another close look in an appropriate case. And lo and behold, 
I think this sort of shows when justices at least illustrate a willingness to take a fresh look at doctrines, um, then cases low and pulled come along and the court might want to take them. And that's what happened here. So the end result was Justice Alito writes for the majority, which Justice Thomas and most of the other justices join, except for Justices Gorsuch and Ginsburg, and says, we are now taking a very fresh look at all of the founding era evidence. It's a very long opinion um, and concludes, it turns out that in fact at the founding, uh, the public meaning of the double jeopardy clause was in fact that the dual sovereignty doctrine um, is valid. And so how does he go about doing that? Well. He looks at about you know, seven, six or seven different categories of sources. Of course, he starts with the text. Um, what does the same offense sort of mean? He considers the evidence sort of briefly of how people at the founding would have understood the terms same offense, whether there is any evidence, turns out not much, with respect to whether it was tied to a specific sovereign. Then he sort of moves on to say, should we even look at the drafting history of the double jeopardy clause? That's a pretty interesting debate because he says for the court, drafting history is not actually, you know, what happens um, among the drafters is less relevant than when you have an ultimate version of the constitution, how do the people who are actually giving their will towards ratification understand those words? And so he takes the argument seriously, but sort of says, that doesn't really help the argument that the doctrine should be overturned. And then he takes quite a hard look at the English common law because that's sort of the body of law where you're thinking to yourself, if you are people back in the late 18th century, what would you be thinking about when you, or what would you be understanding when you're seeing the words same offense? What body of law are you kind of drawing from? What's the common meaning that's built up? So he takes a very close look at the English common law to sort of say, does that support the idea that there was this sort of built up practice from England that might have come over to the United States and come into our constitution that people would have been familiar with that said, uh, when you have two sovereigns prosecuting the same offense, that's still the same offense. And he said, no, the cases just don't show that. He then went through sort of treatises, uh, founding era or earlier, that would have been familiar to people at the time, like Blackstone and sort of reaches the same result by looking at that body of law or body of understanding. Then he goes through the state cases um, around the time of the founding and a little after to see if they sort of shed any light on it. Um, and then he sort of rejects the dissent's argument with respect to, is there something about the structure of the constitution that changes all of this? Is there some understanding that because the states and the federal government have combined to form a single union that we should consider just sort of one sovereign being involved and sort of says, no, the evidence doesn't bear that out either. So that sort of description of like the painstaking detail that you go through and the bodies of sources that you look to, I think shows that is kind of what originalism is about. Um, it's not easy, again, those cases are not very approachable, but it does show you there is sort of a defined set of tools, a defined set of sources that you can look to to figure out these questions. Uh, Justice Thomas then concurs and says, I was skeptical of the validity of the dual sovereign doctrine, uh, but a hard look at the historical record convinced him that the majority's approach was right. Uh, and I think that also shows another feature of originalism, which is you have to be unafraid to say your initial instincts are wrong because however you might originally think that the case is gonna come out, um, if, this, if the sources don't bear it out, like that, that's just what it is. The answer is sort of, you can't, you can't just sort of engraft what you thought originally. Uh, the right answer might be onto what actually the sources say. 
And so I think that's, again, an important facet of the opinion. And then Justice Gorsuch has a fascinating dissent. And again, I think it shows even when you're approaching a case from the same originalist vantage, you can have a very heated debate about it because he goes through all of the same sources as Justice Alito and says, you know what, I read them differently and here's why. So I really commend the opinion to you because I think just like Lockhart is a great case where you sort of have two warring opinions, both taking a textualist approach and showing sort of what are the rules of the game when you're trying to be a textualist? What kind of canons of construction would you look at? And you can still reach different outcomes. Gamble is an, a, a sort of exemplar of this for constitutional interpretation. Uh, so it's just a fun case. Um, and I think it shows originalism is, again, very hard. <laughs> so what should practitioners draw from this really quickly? Um, you know, as a practitioner before the U.S. Supreme Court, you are, of course, constrained by your client. You know, your client wants to win. <laughs> That's kind of the nature of clients. When they're up at the Supreme Court, the case is very important to them. And so if I were to say to my client, you know what, uh, I don't think the implied preemption is part of the Constitution. The client might say, you know what, I, I want to get as many votes as possible, so we should probably make that argument. Uh, that's the sort of nature of the game. But the game-changing thing, even for practitioners, is again, the fact that the court is willing to entertain originalist and textualist arguments means you do have to take them seriously, both in drafting your sort of principal brief for the court uh, to build sort of as many votes as you can. And I think even more importantly, it's a golden era for trying to get amici in the Supreme Court who will really write those sort of purist, more originalist, or depending on the case, textualist briefs uh, that will sort of speak to the justices who do sort of take that approach. And I think it's a really overlooked a part of Supreme Court practice still. Um, but I think this really is a golden era for people. If you're interested in doing that sort of thing, um, it's something that really, I think, aids the court right now. So. Now we'll hear from Justice Warren. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for having me here. Being the only Georgia judge, I feel a little bit like an interloper, but I appreciate the invitation, and I'm really honored to be here, and I'm incredibly impressed by how many people are here, both at last night's dinner and at this panel so early in the morning. So let me start off by asking, if you're willing to do so, how many of you primarily practice in state courts? Can you raise your hand for me? All right, so that's a lot. And do we have any state court judges? <laughs> a lot. Thank you for doing what you do. It is a hard job and we, we really appreciate it. What you do is important. Um, a perspective that I have that's a little bit different than our other very esteemed panelists is that I work with the state constitution all the time. And in Georgia, we've had 10 constitutions, right? And so for me, thinking about originalism and thinking about how to explain originalism to somebody who's not even from my state comes down to creating a basic awareness of how many constitutions your state has had and which of your constitutions is operative and why. And looking at sort of the historical timeline, and, and I did a little bit of research into Florida, I, I am not an expert, but I looked at your constitutional history and the constitutions you've had. There are a lot of similarities in the timing of constitutions. It, it won't come as a surprise to you that typically there's a pre-Civil War constitution and a post-Reconstruction time and then some kind of revision to that. Uh, but in Florida, it seems like, and, and I hope I'm getting this right, but your, your operative constitution is a little bit um, more dated, or is, is a little bit richer in history, perhaps, uh, than Georgia's. So Georgia's most recent constitution was passed, ratified, in 1983, which was two years after I was born, right? So this, it was contemporaneous with my birth. And so you think about original public meaning, and so you know you think about 
all the music that was being played in the early 80s. You think about all the pop culture events and New Coke and all that kind of stuff. So um, our, our 1983 constitution is our constitution in Georgia, but our first constitution was passed in 1777. So there's a really long and interesting history. And one of the things that's so interesting to me is that I have a, a little bit of a different perspective than some of our panelists, although Joe might have a similar experience. I started off at a law firm. And so at a law firm, you typically don't have a lot of time to deal with textualism or originalism unless you're doing something like Sarah's doing, which is a really cool job. Uh, but usually you're, you're serving, I was a business litigation partner doing, doing client work and maybe you have a little time to read Skoda's blog on the side, right? And, but maybe, you know, you're, you're billing hours. And then I went to go work for my state attorney general. And so at that point, I cared a lot about these issues and I had more time to look into them. And I was frequently arguing in front of our state Supreme Court, in front of the, the gentlemen who are now my colleagues. And I knew that our court was a court that cared about these things and that there was an evolution in the way that they were uh, looking into them and explaining what originalism meant and original public meaning. But I was also, I had a client. You know, the state was my client and the state had a perspective. And of course the state wanted to win and make the best arguments it could that were you know, legitimate legal arguments. And so having to figure out how to practice originalism and textualism as best I could within the context of the obligations I had to my client was a really interesting and challenging period of time. And then of course I was fortunate enough to be appointed to the Supreme Court and so then I flipped sides, you know, I flipped over the bench and so I went from the person arguing to these folks to the person deciding it. And so of course when you become a judge you have not a lot of time but more time to think about these things because that is, that is part of your job is to figure out what the Constitution says and what it means and what the laws mean. But a really big difference between the federal system and the state system is that we have one U.S. Constitution. And when you are looking at 10 constitutions, all of a sudden, even if you're looking at the most recent, you have to ask all these really interesting and complex questions, questions that I think our court is still grappling with and your court may be grappling with and certainly courts across the country are grappling with it to the extent they're thinking about it at all. So for example, what if there's a provision in the 1983 Constitution, Georgia Constitution, you could look at the original public meaning from 1983. But what if that provision is materially unchanged from one of our constitutions in the early 1800s? Which original public meaning do you look to and why? These are interpretive principles and doctrines that we've had to think through in really quite granular detail uh, in Georgia and it's really interesting. And so over the course of the past few years, our court has come out with a number of published decisions that you all can look up, particularly in the DUI context, it turns out, because there are a lot of really interesting constitutional issues that arise when an officer asks someone to take a breathalyzer test. Um, but thinking about, well, what does it mean if something is unchanged? Do you look at that original public meaning from the first time it was enacted, absent an indication to the contrary? And how clear does it have to be to presume that the person ratifying the Constitution 100 years later meant to sustain that very same original public meaning. And then one of the most interesting things for me, and I'm sure for the folks who are arguing in front of us is, well, what happens when the Georgia Constitution has a provision that looks a lot like the US Constitution? Are they necessarily the same? Why? Do we look to US Supreme Court precedent interpreting the US Constitution and then adopt it as our own? Why or why not? And so one of the things that our court has, has talked about and held in opinions is that we really only look to US Supreme Court precedent to interpret our own constitution when the text of our constitution is rooted in the same history and language uh, and text as the US Supreme Court when they're actually interpreting the text. 
and not just expounding, like Jason was saying, about what they think the law is. And so there are these really complex issues that we have been going through. I'm confident you all are probably starting to think about these things too. I think it's one of the most interesting and exciting places in the law right now. And um, you know, we of course love the federal courts. We love folks who practice in federal courts. But if you're a person who's practicing in state courts, whether you believe it or not, whether your client believes it or not, it's something you have to think about because it's something that, that judges are thinking about, not only in your state, but across the country and in federal courts too. And so uh, I encourage you to think about questions you have about that process. And I'm glad that you're here today and, and showing some interest in this really interesting topic. Now, Joe Jacob. Thanks for having me today under these bright lights, uh, though I admit I'd rather be with Jason as a backbench bomb thrower in con law right now. Uh, those were good times. Um, let me start with something that you've certainly heard, and that's a phrase that we are a government of laws, not men. Uh, that's often used as a attack on a supposed tyrannical president or governor. Uh, so let me dispel that myth. Um, that phrase was inserted by John Adams into the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780. And let me quote it exactly. The legislative, executive, and judicial power shall be placed in separate departments to, that, to the end that it might be a government of laws and not of men. So this phrase was originally not a charge against the executive, but it was an explanation of the fundamental separation of powers. And so I'd like that uh, to be my starting place. And I'm even going to refer back to some comments the governor made. I mean, obviously, you heard him last night. But he also spoke at the national FedSoc meeting in November, which the topic was originalism. And let me hit a few uh, highlights uh, from that speech. He addressed concerns with an activist court. Uh, two points he made was that they seek to rewrite laws and they have a disrespect for the political branches. Uh, then he went on to mention the benefits of textualism and originalism. Uh, the need to judge by an objective standard and the need to cabin judicial discretion. And importantly, he went on to mention that originalism is more than just interpretation of a word or a phrase, but it is an understanding of the structural constitution. Um, and he said, without an originalist or textualist approach, you know, you'll end up with two things. One, a bureaucracy that takes legislative and judicial power in courts that have more power over policymaking. So that's kind of the background that I want to come at this from. And I'm going to, um, I guess, take off from where Sarah left in describing a little bit about my role. And when I say my role, I really mean our role, because the Office of General Counsel includes not just myself, but Nick and Colleen and James and Casey and Josh. Um, so really, it's, it's the work that we collectively do for the governor that I want to talk a bit about today. Um, there's two roles that I want to discuss, and the first is in the selection and appointment of judges um, that the governor has, and the second is uh, in our role in litigation. The governor has a, a unique ability to defend not only himself in litigation, but also our executive agencies. Over the first year in office, Governor DeSantis has appointed 56 judges. Um, I, half of those are female. 40% non-Caucasian, average age 44, 
And uh, what's really cool for me is uh, all of those judges went to judges school a couple weeks ago. And I heard back from several of them who talked about the diversity uh, in the room, but they said, we all think the same. You know? So uh, that's great news. Um, and obviously, uh, from our perspective, the one thing that we look for in appointing judges is judicial philosophy. I mean, it's the singular uh, test, and it's, you know, do candidates have the philosophy, philosophy that the governor has, and do they have the ability to carry that out on the court for which they are selected? Um, so when we interview candidates, um, we obviously ask about statutory interpretation, and uh, sometimes we get answers like this in terms of what their approach would be. Well, I'd first look to the court's own precedent to try to resolve the meaning of a statute. And then if that didn't re uh, uh, provide an answer, I'd research case law from a higher court for guidance. And from there, I'd review similar cases in sister courts in Florida and if still no answer, I'd look to other states for, you know, cases that are similar in those decisions. And if all else fails, I guess I just examine the text. So not the best approach for our selections. Um, but in those interviews, we try to understand how candidates will particularly handle the text in situations of potential ambiguity. One of the things that we we really focus on, and, and we have a number of hypotheticals we use to try to drive to this, is when does the text become ambiguous? And, and that is, in my mind, a key issue. I mean, there, there's ambiguity that we may all recognize at the start, and then there's some that, that others will uh, identify sooner than they should. And that may be as a result of a hyper-technical analysis. That may be a result of levels of generality. Um, but what we're looking for is, are you willing to approach the context of the text before you deem it ambiguous? And, and, and how do you carry that out in your analysis? Um, I'll just mention one trick question we ask. Um, and that is... You guys are all giving up the good. Well, you know, I Judge know. Judge Pryor gave the exam yeah, yeah. answer and, you know. But look, we got a great team. We can, <laughs> we can redevelop the question. Right. So, That's yeah. Right. Um, so, one of those is pick your favorite current U.S. Supreme Court justice. And half of the candidates say Scalia. Now, there's only nine to choose from. And uh, after last night, I think I know my favorite. Um, <laughs> But, you know, if you um, haven't read Reading Law, as Judge Pryor mentioned, you, you absolutely should. I mean, it, it certainly um, is, is something that, that we examine. But you don't have to go to the extent that some candidates do. We had one that came in and began to quote uh, from Reading Law and cited specific pages. We had uh, one woman who sat her purse down and it was kind of peeking out of her purse. Um, 
But my favorite is this one guy came in with Reading Law. It was dog-eared. It had those multicolored flags sticking out of it. And he sets it down the table and then turns it so we can see the spine. <laughs> that was good. Um, all right, let me shift gears and talk a little bit about another role that we have in our office, and that's in litigation. And uh, I just want to uh, briefly mention two things, and then we can get to the questions. Um, one is there was a, a opinion in mid-January by the Florida Supreme Court on what's referred to as Amendment 4, ex-felon voting rights. And I'm not going to touch at all on the federal litigation. I'm not going to answer any questions in relation to that. I just want to focus on one interpretive um, uh, process that is mentioned in that opinion. Um, and that is that the first step for interpreting the Constitution in Florida is to start with the supremacy of the text and not extrinsic evidence. And so take, take some time to look at that opinion. It's a wonderful opinion in giving guidance uh, on how to uh, interpret and, and for practitioners how to argue before our Supreme Court. Um, the second thing I want to focus on is uh, another amendment, it's referred to as Amendment 2, it's the Medical Marijuana Amendment in Florida. And again, I'm not gonna mention any arguments that are ongoing in that case, I just wanna speak to one thing that we have put in a brief that we have already filed in the case. Um, in that Medical Marijuana Amendment, there is a provision that says, nothing in this section shall limit the legislature from enacting laws consistent with that section. Now certainly that needs a textualist understanding and, and you know, we seek to provide that. But again, rather than getting into what might be a hyper-technical debate over the text from the start or into levels of generality on that, the thing that we really promote is you've got to step back and start with the structural constitution before an amendment tells the legislature that it can only enact things that are consistent with the amendment we you've got to understand that the legislature in florida has plenary power right i mean it is the body for all policy making and and so we want to understand that structural power and authority because it provides from an originalist perspective the very context in which this amendment is coming in and then we can do a textualist analysis of that provision within the larger context of separations of powers and an understanding of the plenary power of the legislature Thank you, Joe. And before we move on to some questions, do any of the panelists have any comments on anything they heard from, from anybody else in their opening remarks? Any commentary? I did tell you this would not be a debate. <laughs> okay, well, let's, uh, let's move to a question that I had. In Here's one comment. Go ahead. Joe, Joe mentioned um, we've looked at case law here, case law there various jurisdictions, then we might look at the text. Yeah, I, I noticed he didn't say, we'd look to legislative history, then we'd look at the text. That's something the Supreme Court itself said, infamously, uh, I guess in the 1970s, uh, something this, the Supreme Court doesn't do anymore. Um, 
but one of the things, no, it, it may be, you didn't mention that because few states have legislative history like we have on the, uh, the federal level. Uh, but that's gotta be one of the things that you have to think about whether you're going to consider it, what role will it play? Even Justice Scalia thought legislative history could be of some relevance in, in terms of linguistic usage. It could be used in the same way that we use dictionaries to determine whether terms and statutes or text are being used according to their ordinary meaning or whether it's some technical or legal meaning. It could also be used to refute the absurdity canon, something that should be of very limited use, um, very controversial among textualists to begin with, a canon that requires a judge at the end of the day to say that the text means something different from what it says, because to take it as meaning what it says would be absurd. So obviously something fairly controversial and one of the only two instances where Justice Scalia thought legislative history could have an appropriate use. Uh, so that's, that's something you have to consider as well. And we still live in an era where many judges who will review your homework, so to speak, uh, might consider legislative history, even though a textualist would say, ordinarily, you should not. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind as well. I uh, agree and support those comments by Judge Pryor. Let me, let me mention uh, the thing that's probably obvious in, uh, to many of you in that, you know, if you dive into legislative history, I mean, at the end of the day, the intent is found in the text, right? That's the culmination of the legislative process. Um, one of the, the reasons why, in our view, and maybe all of our judicial candidates know this because uh, no one walks into the room saying that they would go to legislative history when they interview with us. Um, uh, but one of the reasons that intent of the text, found in the text is so critical to me is I was a lawyer in the U.S. Senate, and so you know I've been a part of lots of committee hearings and committee markups and negotiations. And I'll admit, sadly, um, um, I worked on one immigration bill, and the key provision was intentionally left ambiguous and to be resolved at the agency level because that was the only way to get the votes. And so, if you explore legislative history on that. It is futile, right? Because there is no intention. Um, it was, if anything, intended to be ambiguous. Well, maybe your next trick question can be, uh, what are the two instances where the use of legislative history would be appropriate? <laughs> <laughs> are there two? <laughs> and Judge Pryor mentioned that the United States Supreme Court has actually said, look to legislative history first, and then, then text the Florida Supreme Court um, a number of years ago, as I'm trying to pull up the text from Dan Nordby from a few weeks ago that just locked out. The Florida Supreme Court a, a number of years ago in Amos v. Matthews said the object of constitutional construction is to ascertain the, and effectuate the intention and the purpose of the people adopting it. That intention and purpose is the spirit of the Constitution, is as important as the written word. So that was uh, the, the Florida Supreme Court, and I think the, 
the uh, supremacy of the text that we recently saw in an opinion has probably taken uh, us on a different path at that court. Um, I have a question, of, uh, I think it'll be a very practical uh, application question. Just yesterday in, in conversation, Leonard Leo mentioned all dictionaries are not created equal. All sources uh, for, for trying to determine the original public meaning are not created equal. Um, I'd like to ask um, each of you your thoughts on the preferred sources lawyers and judges should use to determine the original public meaning of the text of the U.S. Constitution and, uh, and then tell us uh, the answer to the same question if it was asked with respect to uh, a state constitution, uh, if you have any thoughts on that, uh, whether we're talking about uh, dictionaries or we've already talked about uh, reading law. Well, I would, I would say that if you want a start on dictionaries, go to uh, appendix, I guess it's appendix A in reading law and there, I mean, not all dictionaries are created equal, uh, but we know uh, that Justice Scalia and Brian Garner provided us a list of the best and most reliable English language dictionaries and legal dictionaries from various periods of American history from the founding till today. Uh, if you want a, a, a quick and reliable list of uh, of dictionaries to govern the meaning of the text, not, not to govern, but to be a, a, a useful guide in determining the meaning of a text from a very, you know, whatever period it might be, that's the best place at least to start. You know, doing the originalist re research though is, is pretty hard, um, as Sarah Harris um, was illustrating with her discussion of uh, the Gamble opinion and the kinds of sources that she went through and the discussion of that opinion are the kinds of sources that you want to look at, at treatises from the various era, um, state court decisions from the era. Um, but, you know, there's not a hard and fast rule of where to start. There are at least a couple of of pretty handy secondary sources that you can start out to begin your research. Um, it's good to have the Heritage Guide to the Constitution uh, if you're going to do that that kind of research. Um, Curlin's five volumes of uh, the Founders Constitution uh, is a very ha handy uh, reference, but I have both of those in, uh, in my chambers. Uh, but probably, um, the research that you'll do after consulting those sources is, uh, is going to be far harder, um, as illustrated by what um, Sarah uh, was was saying in her discussion of Gamble. Yeah, so sort of similar answer, which is uh, so much depends on the time period you're talking about, and so that's kind of the most important choice you have to make, which is. Uh, when, you know, are we talking about the U.S. Constitution as it was originally ratified? Are we talking about amendments? Um, you got to pick your time period carefully. And that sort of then defines what you're looking at because the whole point is how did the public who ratified, you know, that particular part of the Constitution understand what it meant? Um, and so that sort of defines the body of words and usage and what you're going to be looking at. And so, I mean, I picked Gamble because I think there's just so many different categories of sources that may be relevant. Um, 
So rather than sort of going through those again, I would just sort of want to talk about one misconception, which is sometimes you sort of think, well, I just have to look at the Federalist Papers, right? I mean, like they covered everything. Um, and that turns out both not to be true um, and to be very under-inclusive in terms of the founding era debates. I mean, it's a good start in the sense that, you know, it's not like we think like James Madison, though he was like one of the geniuses of his era, like if we only looked at his diary, we, we could figure out everything about the Constitution. Um, it's more, he is sort of one of the people in the Federalist Papers at large are leading a debate in the public about what does the Constitution mean. They're leading one side of the debate. So the anti-federalists have the other side of it. Um, and by looking at sort of the sources at large, you get a better picture of what did these words that went into our Constitution mean to people. Um, and that's kind of why it isn't sort of just hanging your hat on, you know, say like one part of the Federalist Papers without any further context, which is something people often do. Uh, you have to kind of look a little beyond that. So I want to preface my comments with, with the acknowledgement that this is not an originalism competition. <laughs> but if you think it's hard to do originalism with the U.S. Constitution, and it most certainly is, think about doing that at the state level times 50. And think about all the resources that have been deployed and invested into finding every single scrap of historical and contemporaneous evidence as it applies to the US Constitution. How many law professors are trying to find that little niche that no one has talked about, that little twist or that turn, or you know, how is this actually ironic and no one ever knew about it, or we discovered something new? I mean, there are so many resources going into the examination of this one unbelievably critical document. Well. There are 50 states that have 50 constitutions, and in most cases, more than one constitution. And how many people are doing that work for states? I mean, even law professors in our own states are not always looking at the state constitution. I don't know if they'll even start. But my pitch to you is to implore you to start trying to find ways to do that. So if you're teaching part-time, or if you're an adjunct professor at a, a state law a school, or anywhere, frankly, for that matter, you know, think about getting your students to look into this and to write on this and to explore this. Because when I became state solicitor general, I had two amazing predecessors. One of them is now Judge Britt Grant, who is on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals with Lisa Branch, who's on, our, on the front row here. And before that was now Justice Nels Peterson, who is my colleague now on the Georgia Supreme Court, but was also one of Judge Pryor's very first law clerks. And we were all trying to figure out how to do this kind of analysis with really limited resources, not only because we were working for a state, but because you know, what resources do you look to? And so the first step, and, and if you are somebody who's practicing in a state, in this state or any other state, or if you are a judge, you gotta start doing this stuff now. And it's not like you have a lot of extra time on your hands, right? I mean, you know how busy you are and how big your dockets are, but you have to start figuring out, well, how many constitutions were there? Find the text of those constitutions, figure out what the amendments were to those constitutions, getting the contemporaneous dictionaries to figure out what a word meant at a certain period of time. And I'm confident I'm misappropriating this example, and I can't remember if it's from reading law or somewhere else, but if your constitution had the word Fortnite in it, in 1800, that's gonna mean something really different than if you were talking about what Fortnite could mean today, right? So you can't just look to a 2019 or 2020 dictionary to explain what the word Fortnite means. You need something that's contemporaneous. Well, it's not that easy to find dictionaries from the 1800s or from later periods of time. That takes time and it takes work to acquire those resources. What are the treatises 
that were written and were authoritative and publicly accessible contemporaneous with these constitutions being passed. So there are a few very authoritative authors in Georgia, but it's taken time for us to find them and to find copies of those books because not everybody was keeping those books. And do the law libraries have them? Do the public libraries have them? Does your law firm have a library anymore? Maybe not. Does your law school have a library anymore? Well, probably, but did they have these resources? That You have to start doing that research now because when you have a, a cert question granted at your Supreme Court or a court of appeals and you're all of a sudden on a 20 or 30 day briefing timeline, you can't do all this stuff right away. So first ask for an extension, <laughs> but also start doing the work now. Um, and the other important thing too is to, to look, at least in our court, is to look at what our court, the Georgia Supreme Court, how they were interpreting these terms and the time really close to when the text was enacted. I mean, that, that is very persuasive and important. So you have to dig back and do that work too. And I've already talked about what the role of the US Supreme Court precedent may or may not be. But these are the kinds of things that you have to start doing. And you don't wanna find yourself in a crunch when you're on a deadline to get the answer. You wanna get the answer right. And that also means maybe thinking about just pulling out your constitution and reading it start to finish, you know, pop some popcorn, set aside a Friday night, and figure out what might be different about your constitution than the federal constitution. And start thinking about, could there be differences between the two? And are those differences that you wanna explore and how would you make those arguments? Those are things that you can't do, you know, under, when you're really under the gun on a timeline for litigation. But they're things that could make a really big difference uh, to your client and to your state. Joe probably has a real good thought on this, but we're not going to listen to it because I want to ask one more question before we go to the audience Q&A. How, how should an attorney advance an originalist textualist interpretation that's contrary to judicial precedent? Um, how should a, you know, an intermediate appellate court, how do they confront wrongly decided a precedent? How do the practitioners deal with it. I just quoted this, uh, this old Florida Supreme Court case, and, and now two weeks ago we have a very different uh, 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 application of, the, of textualism uh, adopted by the Florida Supreme Court. So uh, what, how sh what thoughts do you have on how uh, attorneys and judges should, should confront the wrongly decided precedent, which we have a little bit of in the state of Florida? Start on it. So I'll just sort of speak to the federal level, um, although I think the you know considerations are probably fairly similar, which is you know you're pre like, I'm presupposing from the hypo I have a client who in fact wants you know, wants me to take an originalist perspective and wants to get a precedent overturned, and so the good news for that client is this is much more possible before the current U.S. Supreme Court as the Gamble case and you know, really tons of other cases from last term like Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt Illustrate. The court is actually willing to reconsider its precedence on originalist grounds. So that's the good news. The bad news is it's not so easy, as the Gamble case shows, uh, to necessarily get the outcome your client's going to want if they want to um, address that precedent. And so you have to be conscious not only of making a very compelling case that you are, in fact, right with respect to the original meaning, um, but also grapple with the fact that not all of the justices take Justice Thomas's view, which can sort of unstare decisis, which is sort of, if it's wrong, it's wrong, um, and instead sort of go through the court's precedents on stare decisis, which have a much more reticulated sort of framework for deciding whether or not to depart from past precedent. So, you really do have to, as a pr practitioner, be conscious of the fact that 
just articulating that you know you can have a very very compelling case that the original meaning um, is something different than what the court's precedents say but in order to actually get the votes to win you are also going to need to actually grapple with the court's precedents and sorry decisis at, at the federal intermediate appellate court level it's not going to be very helpful we're going to be bound by precedent and you're going to have to acknowledge that you can certainly make the argument to preserve it uh, for further review um, it's worthwhile to do that and to make us aware of it it may be that the precedent that that you're dealing with is our precedent not supreme court precedent so the opportunity to preserve that argument make that argument and then seek on bank review is certainly um, something that's available to you as well but it but you know as justice scalia explained in reading law if you have precedent on point that's it, it's going to be binding uh and so that's that's really kind of a uh, an overriding principle uh, that you have to deal with. Uh, it's only in the unusual circumstance that you finally got it to a court that has the authority to overturn that precedent uh, where, where it matters most. Well, I had a really good answer to the other question, so <laughs> I, I'm going to give that uh, briefly. Uh, <laughs> backbencher. Um, so Jason had asked what dictionary would you use, but um, for me it's a, it's a question of when you use a dictionary. Um, and let me just, uh, I'm going to give away another hypo, is that okay? Yeah. Can I do that? Um, so <laughs> one of the hypotheticals that we ask um, is a question of, hey, if you've got an ordinance that says you can't build a fence higher than four feet, can you build a six foot fence? Okay, that's easy, right? No. Um, but then we ask, okay, can you build a six-foot wall? And, you know, people do their, their various interpretive methods, but we'll give them a dictionary dic definition that says a fence is a barrier. So now, does that mean that you can't build a wall because a fence is defined as a barrier? But then I'll get onto Google Pictures and I'll type in fence, and I'll type in wall, and I'll show the pictures, and I guarantee you my 10-year-old son can tell you the difference between a fence and a wall. Um, so th the question is, <laughs> thanks, John. So you know, the question is, is there, is there some argument on plain meaning that should even precede the use of a dictionary? And, and I think that's worth um, you know, exploring as you're um, um, bringing forth your arguments. All right, let's go to audience questions, and we don't have time for many, so they've got to be, you got to bring us the very best one. And then Daniel Woodring has probably got that. We'll be quick and we'll be crisp. Um, I thought a very interesting question was raised when you talked about, particularly the state level, you know, you've got the Constitution of 1885, and then you may have 10 versions since then. We're seeing that play out a little bit even in the federal courts, because in Espinoza, they're looking at, in the Montana case, a Blaine Amendment, which obviously the origin of those was way back and they've often been readopted three, four, five times. What I didn't really hear though was kind of a principled way of how do you address that? In other words, if you have a constitutional provision, you know, it's been recently, the whole constitution's been adopted, but significant chunks of it are verbatim from 100 years ago or verbatim with they've updated the he, she pronouns or something. What do you do? How do you approach that? from an originalist textless perspective. 
I'm sure Sarah can tell you how her court has done that, but you know, I, I love going to reading law. Reading law is about interpreting all kinds of written text, including state constitutions, and there's of course a canon about recodification or restyling projects, and and there's there also uh, there's also a canon about uh, the adoption of provisions or language uh, that's already received an authoritative construction from either the court of last resort or a, a longstanding uniform construction of inferior courts or, or even administrative agencies that even Justice Scalia recognized could, by the recodification, by the restyling project, uh, could therefore become uh, binding and uh, authoritative if if the legislative body, or in this case, the people, uh, readopt, recodify um, a, a particular um, you know, text that has been construed um, by the court of last resort, that's something that, you, that has to be considered um, as, as part of the meaning. Well, I think that's right, and, and I did attempt to, to, in broad strokes, talk a little bit about what our court has said about that, and, and we have set forth interpretive principles and presumptions that we apply in those constructions, such as if there was a definitive and clear construction of an origin, original public meaning that was readopted, looking back to that, absent a, an indication that there's a reason we shouldn't do that. There was something else we needed to consider that said we really didn't mean to carry that forward. So that's an example of one of those. The hard part, though, I think, is when you're a practitioner, because if you're making an argument and you have to grapple with that and your court has not set forward those interpretive principles yet, then you have to make an argument consistent with your client's position that gets the court from A to B and B being your intended result. You have to explain to them what presumptions or interpretive principles or canons that you would need to apply to get to that answer. Uh, and, th and that is a very tricky business. It it's, takes all the work that we've been describing here, but I think it's a great question and I wish you luck. Next question. Uh, the rise of originalism and textualism, of course, is often identified with a response to Warren and Berger courts and the, uh, you know, the reading rights that aren't there in the Constitution, the penumbras and emanations and, um, and that whole line of, of cases. Um, but I'm gonna read something from the Florida Constitution. I think there's no Florida judges here, so I can, I can safely ask this of you. Um, and have a response to how, from an originalist perspective we should we should look at this language and it says the enunciation herein of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or impairs others retained by the people so from an originalist or textualist perspective how do we look at open-ended provisions like this um, in state constitutions well that that sounded a lot like the ninth amendment or the tenth amendment uh, which is a rule of construction you know one of the things to keep in mind, you, you referred to that as open-ended. Uh, I'm not sure that that's necessarily open-ended. The language of state constitutions, like the federal constitution, like so many laws, is the language of law. It's written with some kind of legal meaning. What you read to me sounded a lot like a rule of construction, in the same way that when the Supreme Court interpreted the Second Amendment and took a fresh look at it in Heller and looked at the operative clause versus the prefatory clause. It was looking at it 
in a particular way, understanding that the language of law can be different from ordinary language. So when the Second Amendment starts with um, a well-regulated militia, uh, well militia being necessary to the security of a free state, that's the prefatory clause, the purpose clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, the operative clause. That's a, that was a common construction and legal text of the times and remains a common uh, kind of use of, of language in, in, in law. Uh, so I think one of the, the, the questions you have to ask yourself is, is this written in legal language? And is that, you know, is that kind of, uh, of text, um, you know, whether it's unique in your state constitution, is it really, though, common in, in, in a larger sense? And I think the other point is the provision that you quoted also obviously refers to the rest of the Florida Constitution. So it certainly raises some questions about just sort of structurally, what is your constitution doing? One of the interesting things about state constitutions, unlike the federal constitution, is that states are often given, giving their legislatures, for instance, far more power than the enumerated powers that are specifically granted in Article I. And so context really, I think, does matter as well to interpreting that provision as well as sort of all the other tools we've talked about. You could not pay me enough to tell my brothers and sisters on the Florida Supreme Court how to interpret their own constitution. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Georgia has one of those, so you're safe. All right, we have a very special speaker next. So we only have time for one more audience question uh, right over here. So thank you all for uh, being here. It's really great to see a few of my heroes on the panel. Um, my question to you is a little bit more of like a career question. when um, it can be both directed you know, to Judge Warren and Judge Pryor, but also to Mr. Joseph. Um, so to Judge Warren and Judge Pryor in the context of selecting clerks and to Mr. Joseph in the context of you know, selecting uh, judicial candidates Aside from like the standard, you know, qualifications, you know, good class ranking, uh, law review experience, moot court, things like that. What are the things that you individually, you know, are looking for uh, in your candidates? You know, the things that like are more specific to you that says this person got it. I want this person on the bench or I want this person in my chambers. I'll go first. Um, so what do I look for in a law clerk? Uh, I think is really the question, uh, besides the usual things like uh, academic standing, that sort of thing. I, I do want to make sure that uh, they share my perspective about what the role of a judge is, that this is an objective enterprise, that there are right and wrong answers, that they appreciate the fact that that's not an easy task, and we're going to have um, debates about it and we're gonna have tough cases. And I want the kind of law clerks who are going to, because they're going to have more time to spend on individual cases, because that work's been divided up in my chambers, than I will have to decide on each, uh, to, to spend on each case. Um, they need to be willing to push back and remind me of things that I might have missed or um, that I'm not appreciating uh, and, and help me um, 
check myself and, and, uh, and reach the right answer. Uh, I, I want the kind of chambers where uh, we're going to engage in that debate really uh, as equals, recognizing at the end of the day, of course, that it's, it, it has to be my decision. Um, but, but I don't want them to be shy about that. Um, I want them to be respectful and professional about it, but, I, but, but we're going to, I'm going to take what they have to say very seriously. And then the, the other thing uh, is, um, is this someone I would like to spend time with? Because we're going to spend a lot of time together. Uh, I take my law clerks um, to lunch. I've taken them to football games. Uh, we spend a, you know, a lot of time working together. We, some of it, you know, fun time uh, to build um, a team. Uh, and, you know, personality, uh, personality matters uh, as well. I think that's all right. And, and Judge Pryor notoriously has excellent clerks. Uh, I, I would add to that a real genuine curiosity about the law. And you also need to be a good teammate because your chambers is a team. And just like Judge Pryor described, you know, you have to have people who play well with others because we have one goal, and that's to get the answer right and, and to, to get the law right. But to do that, everybody has to play a very specific role and work together. I also like people who have really compelling personal stories, and that can take all kinds of different forms. But it is really neat when someone's had an interesting experience, a diverse experience. They have something about their life or their interests that's just a little bit different than sort of the standard law school student. And so whenever that happens, it's an extra luxury. I'll just say uh, you got the first thing right, and I compliment you. You didn't try to pronounce this crazy last name. <laughs> so. Um, but I really look for one thing, and that is uh, a desire to learn. I mean, there's, there's no one that's going to come into our crazy office with all the things we're working on that's going to have, you know, the, the full skill set, right? So we want someone that just wants to work hard and just learn. And if, if I can see that, uh, see the right heart, the right philosophy, uh, then we would want that person on board. Well, thank you to all our panelists for uh, participating. We appreciate you being here.